42, uh, we're going to see Luke give us the first of several descriptions of what the early church looked like. What What did the Christian community, what were some marks that defined the Christian community? Uh, especially in these early days. And, and as we read this passage, and if, uh, and if you're listening at home, uh, first let me say that we, we love you and we miss you, uh, and we cannot wait uh, until we are able to gather again all together. Uh, but as we read this passage, if you're listening from home, um, after I get done reading, or while I'm reading, and even if you're here, right, make some notes of how Luke describes this early church. Right, uh, and then if you're listening from home, you can actually pause it and discuss what you observe in the passage. But as as I'm reading this, um, I want you to ask this question: What do you think the church ought to be about? What is the church about? What do you think it ought to be about? What exactly does the church do? Uh, And if you grew up in or around the church, you already have some kind of built-in scripts of what that is, right? When when I say church is blank, you have words that fill that blank. And what I want to do this morning is we want to take those ideas and we want to submit them to God's Word and we want to see, uh, are they right or not? Uh, Where does God's Word uh, confirm us and where does it challenge us? Uh, but even if you're, uh, if you're not familiar with Christianity or if you're exploring Christianity for the first time, this can give you a grid of what the church community, of what Christian community is supposed to look like. Uh, so as we do that, uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start in, actually I'm going to start in verse 41. And to give you a little bit of context of what's happened uh, is Peter has just preached a sermon. Uh, and... And it has caused people to believe, right? It says that they were cut to the heart. As Peter explained what was happening on the day of Pentecost, as he preached this sermon, the people were cut to the heart, they were convicted of their sin, and they trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Uh, And then Luke records for us what happens next. We're going to start reading in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray and ask God to help us with His Word. 
Father, these words are yours. Uh, They are true and good. Uh, And you speak them that we may be transformed. And so, Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that simply just reading the words on a page uh, apart from your work uh, will not change us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would transform us. that you would bring light to our eyes and gladness to our hearts. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So that word uh, community uh, is something of a, a buzzword right now, right right in our culture. Um, uh, something about that word when you say it kind of strikes this deep down chord. Uh, maybe it's, um, maybe it's a, a fond memory uh, or a deep longing or maybe even some grief of what you thought uh, community could be. Uh, you know, it has overtones of, of friendship, of like-mindedness. Uh, but, but community, I think I could argue, is something that we all long for. Uh, a fellow pastor of mine, a pastor at one of our sister churches, a guy named uh, Brian Habig, I remember him uh, giving an illustration. He said one morning he was... Uh, turning on the Weather Channel, and uh, you know he was just trying to get the local forecast. And some other major weather event was going on, whether it was a tornado outbreak or a hurricane or something like that. And so, as as they were kind of describing the events on the ground, the 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 weatherman on the channel said, "And these are the days when the Weather Channel becomes a community." And Brian was like, well, really, I was just kind of looking for my local forecast. I wanted to know if it was going to rain today. I, don't, I, was really, I wasn't really tuning in for community, right? But we kind of throw that word around. Uh, and, um, and I think this is even a relevant discussion because of the heightened tribalism present so pervasive in our culture right now that we're just, we're, we're, we're segmented into these little camps, right? We're all about what, you know, what we're against and what we're not for and and all of this. Um, So what about the community of Jesus? As we talk about community, what kind of community does Jesus build? Uh, What what does it look like when the Spirit fills a people? Uh, And I think Luke gives us some pictures, some descriptions of what that's like in this passage. As I read this week, I came across the phrase vital signs. And you know what vital signs are right when you go to the hospital they want to they want to check all of your vitals they want to make sure everything's beating in the right rhythm and all that good stuff and so as we read this passage what are some vital signs for the church what does it look like for the church uh, when it acts as it ought to act when it is what it ought to be uh, now I want to say also that we need to be I want to begin with kind of a word of caution uh, because ideal descriptions can be very discouraging, right? Uh, when we when we read about this early community, uh, we can get frustrated, uh, we can get angry, we can get critical because we don't maybe we don't see all of this reality in our present experience, and it and it frustrates us. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's almost like this is the honeymoon phase of the early church. Right, and maybe sometimes you look around at the the people that we do church with, or the you know the the person maybe at the end of your pew or within your family, like now we're on like year twenty five, um, or or, uh, or or we're at, we're at year seven, right? When things tend to get a little tend to, tend to get a little rough. Um, 
So ideal descriptions can be discouraging uh, for us. Uh, and so here's what I want to encourage you to do. And, and um, the other side of that is we can exhaust ourselves trying to make this happen. Right? Uh, and so I just want to begin on the front end by saying this is kind of an idyllic expression, right? This is, uh, this is kind of like the honeymoon phase. No, we don't see all of these realities maybe at play in our present experience. And I want to encourage us that the early church didn't either. These people were not superhuman. Uh, their sin, uh, they, they were sinners too, and, and we're going to see in just a couple of chapters their sin becomes very apparent, right? The early church was by no means perfect. And so I want us to bear that in mind, uh, but even as we read these things, uh, I want to encourage you, it's easy to be an architect, Right? When you look at your local church, it's easy to be an architect and say, here's, here's the master plan, here's the grand vision that I have for the church. Right? But when you're an architect, you, tend to get, you, you, you get really disappointed in other people. Right? Uh, you tend to look at other people and you go, you're not playing into the master plan. Right? And so I would encourage you, we don't have to be architects. Jesus is the architect. Right? Jesus is the one who designs his church. In fact, Jesus is the one who, uh, who builds it. Um, but, but within that, I would say, let's not be architects, let's be builders. If there is an area of this vision that you say, man, uh, I wish that were more true of us, and it needs to be an us... Right? This, isn't, this is a we, it's not a you, it's not a me, it's a we. Right? As we look at this, let's not be architects, let's be builders. If there's something you see that you wish were more true of us, begin by asking the question, how do I contribute? Because one of the words that uh, we see all over this passage is that word fellowship. Right? Togetherness is all over this passage. They, they were devoted to the fellowship. They were all together in one place. They had things in common, right? So this idea of partnership and sharing is kind of an overarching description of the early church. And that means that everybody plays a part. Everybody plays a role. So as we go through this, let's be challenged. That's okay. But let's not be overly discouraged. Remember that the Word is meant to drive us to the Lord, right? He exposes our weaknesses so that we would trust in His strength. Uh, So... Here's how I want to look at this. First, I want to see what, uh, what they pursued and really what that means for us. What do we pursue together? How does that change us inwardly? How does that affect us inwardly? And what effect does that have on us outwardly? Or what, rather, what effect does that have on those who are outside? Uh, so what is it that we pursue together? And I get that word pursue uh, from verse 42 where it says they devote themselves. Uh, the word actually shows up again in verse 46, but in this case it's translated day by day. But, but the idea is that they were regularly devoted to persevering in um, pursuing certain things, right? They were engaging, intentionally engaging in a few things. They weren't doing everything. They were doing a few things. And what were those things? The first one is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
And what that means is that uh, the first 12 witnesses of Jesus, the original followers of Jesus, they're taking Jesus' words and sharing them with the new followers of Jesus, right? So uh, the apostles' teaching basically is... Peter and the rest of the twelve taking what Jesus had taught them and teaching it to others. Right, So you see already this pattern in the early church of, of transfer. Right, this, this early church is a learning community. Right, uh, They were devoted to learning what the apostles had to say. Uh, and the apostles' authority was backed up by the miracles they were doing. Luke tells us there were signs and wonders being done by them. Well, that refers to miracles. And we see some miracles. We're going to see uh, one next week in Acts chapter 3. But these miracles confirm the authority of the apostles to say what they are saying. Right? Um, In fact, that's just as kind of a side note, side discussion. That's what miracles do in the Bible. Miracles don't happen all over the Bible. Right? Miracles in the Bible actually come in clumps. Alright? The first clump of miracles comes around Moses. Right? Moses uh, and his brother Aaron do miracles. And God allows them, God gives them those miracles because Moses, Moses is God's messenger, his prophet. He's also God's deliverer. He is the one whom God has appointed to save his people. And so God verifies Moses' authority, verifies that he is with Moses by allowing him to do the miracles we see Moses do. The second major clump comes several hundred years later. All right. I think it's easy to forget sometimes when we're reading through the Bible that the events, in particular of the Old Testament, span a few thousand years. Right. So several hundred years after Moses, uh, we see some prophets, Elijah and Elisha and others, begin to come on the scene. Uh, and, their, and their job is to warn Israel, they are God's messengers, uh, before Israel is exiled. And what do you know? They, have, they do miracles. Miracles that confirm their authority. Now, anybody want to take a guess as to when the third major clump of miracles happens? Jesus. Right? Again, several hundred years later, Jesus arrives and he is surrounded. He does several miracles. Miracles unlike any of the miracles that come before him. Why? Because he's God's messenger and he is God's appointed rescuer. Right? And then who else does miracles? His messengers, the apostles. Right? Uh, And we see that as the apostles die out, the miracles die out as well. Right, that the New Testament era is not completely characterized by miracles. We don't see as many. Uh, we don't see any really, really in the letters, right? But in the Book of Acts, we see these miracles being done as verification of the apostles' authority. So that's just a side note, but I think it's helpful to, to know that. Um, so, so this early group of Christians, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They regularly are engaging in listening to learning from the apostles. Now, we don't have apostles anymore, but their words have become our New Testament. That their authority has been written down and inscribed for us in the Word. So then it would be very, uh, it's very appropriate to say that the, early, that the Christian community is rooted in God's Word. 
that one of the things, one of the very few things that we ought to intentionally engage in and pursue is God's Word. Right? Our, we are a Spirit-filled community. The Spirit-filled community is a community rooted in the Word. Back in Luke chapter 10, we see Mary, a friend of Jesus, sitting at Jesus' feet and hanging on His every word. And, and her sister Martha criticizes her. But what, Je- but what does Jesus say about her? She has chosen the good portion. She is doing what is necessary. May we be a people who choose the good portion. Right? There are more voices than ever clouding our daily atmosphere. More words than ever clouding our daily atmosphere. And you remember the old phrase, uh, you are what you eat. Right? That what you put into your body, your diet, um, inevitably affects your body. And so, when we read this description, we ought to ask the question, how about my heart and soul? What diet am I feeding them? Right? Am, I, am I feasting more on the opinions of pundits and media personalities and celebrities and friends? Right? Am I allowing that to tune the song of my heart and mind? Or am I regularly feasting on God's Word? By the way, only one of those will generate godliness. Only one of those is used by the Spirit to make us more like Jesus. I'm not saying the opinions of other people can't be helpful. But I'm saying that we are meant to be rooted and guided in the truth of God's Word. It is the North Star. So we need to pursue and be devoted to that. As a church... um, Look, and if you say, look, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to do that. I haven't studied the Bible a whole lot. I, when I read the Bible, I'm kind of lost. Hey, that's okay. Uh, that's what we're here for. We want to provide as many opportunities for this as possible so that we can be a people who are learning and knowing and treasuring and doing the Word. All right, so they were devoted to the Word. Uh, They were also devoted to, uh, we see, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, This probably refers to their worship together, right? Um, The breaking of bread probably refers to the Lord's Supper. That's how Luke describes it in other places, right? So they were were reenacting Jesus' last meal, which is exactly what we're going to do today. So as a part of their regular gatherings, they were reenacting Jesus' last supper as a reminder of what Jesus had done for them. At the very center of their gatherings, not only was Jesus' word, but also a visible representation of Jesus' sacrifice. And they were devoted to the prayers. Uh, and, and Luke is clear, he says, the prayers. Uh, and so this, we're, we're not 100% sure what that means, but a, it was a system of regularly praying together. Uh, sadly, this is one of those aspects that we have seen fallen off in uh, the modern day church. That, that we don't know how to pray together. Right? If you want to guarantee that only three people are going to show up to the church building, just say we're having a prayer meeting. Right? Uh, like, if, like if I want to know that I can't fill up a room, all i got to do is say, hey, we're going to pray together. Um, 
And I wonder if some of this, we're going to, uh, as we read through the book of Acts, I want you to take note. We may not hit every passage where it deals with this, but take note of the way that they pray. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the reason we get so bored of praying together is because we, we limit our prayers to circumstantial things. Uh, things like illness, um, etc. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for those things. Uh, but but we, we, I wonder if we get bored because we're just praying a laundry list. Uh, rather than rather than praying the way the New Testament believers prayed, which was kingdom oriented prayers, prayers for spiritual growth and maturity, prayers for revival, uh, we see uh, in Acts chapter four that as the church is challenged by the religious authorities, what does it drive these people to do? They they go to the Lord in prayer. Right, And they even thank God that they are counted worthy to suffer. When was the last time you prayed that? Right? Uh, and so let's, let, let the New Test- let's let the New Testament shape our prayer life together. I'm not saying we don't pray for these things, but I, I wonder if it wouldn't help us to maybe minimize some of those things and pray kingdom-centered, spiritual, life-centered prayers. And that's just a, just a thought. We also see that so they were devoted to what they pursued together was the Word. They pursued prayer. Uh, and that um, also their worship, there, there were a couple of elements of it. We see that there was formal worship where they were gathered all together. And in this case, they would gather in the temple. They probably didn't make the normal sacrifices, but they at least gathered together in the temple. But there were also informal gatherings in their homes. Right? So you have large group gatherings and small group gatherings. The, the early church consisted of both. But they were also devoted, uh, as Luke says, to the fellowship. And I already said that that word kind of characterizes the whole section. Right? It's the word you may have heard before, koinonia. Uh, togetherness, participation, sharing. Right? They had a shared life. And this really leads into the uh, to the next section. Uh, this kind of bleeds over into both. But notice what the main characteristic of their shared life was. It was generosity. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So, so one of the primary marks of their fellowship, of their togetherness, was generosity towards each other. Right? God had not distributed wealth evenly within the church community. And so those who had sold some of what they had to help those who did not have. Right? Um, so this is not, we're not talking pennies in the kettle at Christmas time. We're not, tro- you know, uh, there's, a, there's a great story about uh, a butterball turkey. Um, what was the name of the old radio guy? Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey tells a story about a lady who called the Butterball Turkey Hotline. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing, right? But she had found this uh, this Butterball Turkey in her freezer. And it had been there 
quite some time. And so she asked, she, she, she called the hotline to see if it would still be good. If she could still eat it. And the guy, and I think, I think it had been there like 30 years. It had been in the freezer a long time. Some of y'all, some of y'all, y'all don't say, oh, some of y'all have had things in your freezer that long. Okay? Don't judge that poor woman. Um, but, uh, so the guy, on the, the guy on the hotline said, well, yes ma'am, I mean, if, it's, if it hasn't thawed out, if it's remained frozen that whole time, then technically it would still be good, but it probably doesn't taste very good. It's probably freezer burned. And she said, oh, no, that's okay. I was going to give it to the church. Right? Um... That's kind of how we do, right? Like that. Like when it comes to charity, when we think of charity, we think of like, what have I got left over, right? What have I got just hanging around that I don't need anymore? And let me just throw it off on somebody. But that was not what characterized the early church. You actually had people who were selling their land to help meet the needs of those within the community. Uh, flip over to Acts chapter four. This is another one of those description. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So you see how this is another one of Luke's descriptions. Some of the same things we're already reading about in Acts 2. But notice this, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's, a, that's kind of a jarring thing to read, isn't it? Uh, by even thinking on a global perspective, which is almost overwhelming, uh, we are economically wealthy uh, people. Even the poorest among us is wealthier than some of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, and here, you know, it, it's, it's almost too big to think about. How do we participate in this kind of need meeting? But it was clearly an aspect of the early church's life. They were a generous people. That was one of those changes that inwardly happened. And I want you to notice that, that wealth is not the bad guy. Like those who have houses and lands, men like Barnabas that we're going to read about in Acts 4, they're not condemned for having houses and lands. Right? The apostles aren't wagging their fingers at those who have and saying, Oh, naughty, naughty, you shouldn't have. Right? Uh, this, is not, this is not communism or communalism where everything is taken in by a central authority and then evenly distributed out. And I say evenly because in no practice in communism anywhere has anything ever been evenly distributed. Right? Somebody always possesses... Look, God, God does not evenly distribute gifts. Notice I didn't say fairly. God is always fair and just. But God does not evenly distribute His gifts. Right? I am not good-looking, athletic, and smart. Okay? Some people are. And I'm not upset about it. Right? But, God does not evenly distribute all His gifts. So what we see happening in the early church is that 
is that something about the gospel compels these people to gladly and generously give. Not, they, they are not held at gunpoint. They are not forced. In fact, we're going to see this in Acts chapter 5. They're not forced to give up their stuff. They gladly and generously give to support the needs to the point that it says there were no needy among them. That's, that's shocking, right? Um, so the picture here is, of, uh, is one of the heart, right? In some ways, communalism would be easier. Right? You just tell me what percentage I need to give and I'll give it to you and then you take care of the rest. Right? right? We, always want, we always want the simple rule. Uh, communism is, in one sense, we could say is easier because we're just told what to do and we do it. But the description we're given here isn't easy. It's one of motive and heart. It's one where we have to look inwardly and say, am I being a good steward of the gifts God has given to me? And do you notice what they said in Acts 4? Uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. There was an acknowledgement that whatever they had was given to them. It was all given. Right? If, if, you, if you possess a Christian worldview, one of the things that you realize is that everything you have is a gift. Right? When you begin to think about the number of things that you had nothing to do with that brought you to this point in your life, it's a gift. Right? And that was an acknowledgement that, that, that fueled their generosity in the early church. Right? So that's what they pursued together. And we see how that changed them inwardly. And one of those things we already talked about, generosity. Right? They, they, they were a generous people with one another. And we're going to see that they were also generous outwardly. Another, thing, another way that that changed them and it changes us is, is awe. It says awe came upon everyone. The word is actually fear. But not, not the terrifying, well, the good kind of fear. Right? Reverence. That as these people were pursuing the word and in pursuing uh, prayer and pursuing fellowship and worship... It produced in them awe. They were in awe of God. They were in awe of His majesty. They were in awe of His mercy. Right? If, you've ever, if you've ever hiked to the, the top of a mountain or to the edge of a ridge, right? there is the awe of what you see, the grandeur. And there's also a little bit of fear, or there should be, right? that if you slip off the edge of that... That, right, that, that, there's something about that grandeur that can kill you. That's the kind of, that's the kind of holiness God possesses. Right? That he is, he is to be feared, adored, admired, but be careful. Right? He ought to be approached in the way that He calls us to approach Him. And again, we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see a, an example of that in Acts chapter 5. So, awe came upon them, right? There was a sense of uh, fear, um, awe, awe, generosity, but then gladness, too. Uh, look at uh, verse 46. Day by day. 
attending the temple together, so worshiping and breaking bread in their homes, so informal gatherings in homes, they received their food with glad, and the ESV says generous hearts, the word is probably more like sincere or simple, but they received their food with glad hearts. They were glad. They were joyous people. As they worshipped, they were happy. Does that characterize our gatherings? Right? Are we glad? Right? Worship is not meant to be this kind of chaotic, frenzied event. But neither is it meant to be dull. And sometimes in the West, we're really good at being dull. Right? But these people were glad. Uh, they were in awe of the Lord and they were glad uh, of heart. They had glad hearts. Now, so that's how they were changed inwardly. How did that, what effect did that have outwardly? Look at verse 47. They were praising God, so they were worshiping. And notice, having favor with all the people. Now again, we're going to see that they didn't really have favor with all the people. That there were plenty of people who were not crazy about what was going on. The Jewish religious establishment was not crazy about these gatherings. And they're going to do what they can do to stamp them out. But the the picture we see is that the gathering of these Christians, both at large and in homes, was attractive to people. They had favor with the people. That means their friends and family members and neighbors saw their generosity, saw their devotion, and said, Man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So daily, people are coming up to these new believers and saying, I want to follow Jesus too. Now, notice who does the work. Who's adding them to the number? The Lord is. Right, The Lord is drawing these people in. Now that doesn't mean that the people weren't doing anything. But the Lord is using what they're doing to draw new people in. But notice how church-centered it is. The Lord added to their number. Right? We tend to think of salvation in a very individualistic sense. Right? Like, I'm saved, I'm not too worried about the church. But in the early church, it was there. It was the gathering. It was the fellowship. Right? People were drawn into the church, into the gathering of believers. Right? It wasn't simply individual. It was corporate. Now, what do we do with that? Well, the spirit-filled community is meant to be a witness-bearing community. Right? It's not a study club. Is not a supper club, right? And if you notice, we can focus, uh, and often we do, on one of those pursuits, right? We can, and it, look, it's good to be focused on study of the Word. But if we neglect the other two or we're weak in the other two or in the other areas, uh, it just becomes a study club, right? Where we're just learning some stuff. Well, that's good, but it's, it's more than a study club, right? And it's more than a supper club, Right? Fellowship is important. Uh, we, love, we love gathering in our homes. Uh, but that's not all that it is. Right? It's not just a supper club. Uh, it's not just a hymn singing. Right? 
Um, you know, it, maybe maybe we focus on the worship aspect, over focus on the worship aspect, where it's just like we just get together uh, and we have great worship, whatever that means, right? Um, so it's easy to to over focus in one area, um, but we see that the early church is not just one of those things. It is a witness-bearing community, right? It is a it is a group of diverse people sharing life in Jesus and bearing witness to Him, uh, to to in the other areas where they are, right? To those around them, to the people where they live and work and play. And that means that that commitment to the fellowship is going to be risky. It's going to be costly. And it's going to be inconvenient. Now, again, it's easy to read that description and think, man, we're terrible. We, you know, like we, like we, we look at this honeymoon phase of the early church, this spirit-filled moment, and we're like, well, might as well hang it up. Right? Or maybe or maybe, you know, we kind of get on this relentless search of like, well, that community doesn't seem very spirit filled. Let me move to another one. Oh, that convenient that no, nope, I'm gonna go over here. Right? Uh, and we as we call it we call it the church hop. Right? And again, that comes from us thinking that we're the architect instead of the builder. Uh, that if we see an area of church life that we think, man, uh, this is where I contribute. Uh, this is where I can help us pursue one of these er, one of these marks, right? Word, prayer, sacraments, fellowship. This is this is where I contribute. This is where I help build the fellowship, right? That's that's the tack we want to take. But we what we need to ask the question: What was it? What was it that made them do this? What was it that caused them to be generous? What was it that caused them to to enjoy being together? It wasn't guilt. It was grace. Because they realized what God had done for them in Jesus. Right? Grace fueled their generous fellowship. Because they realized everything's a gift, right? God has, God has given me the gift of eternal life in His Son. I can, I can sell that land and give it to so and so who doesn't have anything. Right? Uh, Grace fueled their worship. That, that, that awe, right? That awe and that gladness came from realizing that they were sinners saved by grace. That they had done nothing to contribute to their salvation, but God had done everything. And that, had ca- and that caused them to overflow in worship to Him. So the way that this community comes into being is when we remember what Jesus has done. And when we pray that His Holy Spirit would fill us so that we can be this kind of community. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We pray that You would use Your Word and Your Holy Spirit uh, to mold us and shape us. uh, Make us a, a new people, a new humanity in Jesus. God, would you draw us together as a fellowship. Help us to be devoted to the Word, to prayer, uh, to the fellowship. Lord, would you work in our hearts uh, awe and gladness and generosity. And we pray that our community would be compelling and attractive. That you would add to our number, even daily, those who are being saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. Uh, so here's how uh, commu- here's how these little nifty 